everyone, and welcome to Food Disruptors, an IFT podcast that brings you the latest insights and perspectives from some of the brightest minds in the science of food. Each episode, our guests discuss the ever-changing intersection of entrepreneurship, innovation, and science in their role in advancing the global food system. While studies of human gut flora have taken place for decades, scientists have only recently started to dissect the complex relationships between the microbiome, diet, immune function, and overall health. As knowledge on the microbiome develops, recent research suggests that the microbes in our guts could influence our risk for diseases, including obesity, neurological disorders, irritable bowel syndrome, autoimmune disease, and sleep disorders, to name a few. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden. Today, we'll speak about the gut microbiota with two experts, Daryl Coburn, Assistant Professor of Food Science at Penn State University, and Perna Kashyap, Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Microbiome Program at the Mayo Clinic. Together, we'll explore the impact of diet on our gut, including the role of fibers and starches, and discuss how the microbiome promotes proper immune functioning and overall health. Thanks both of you for joining me today. Thank you. So let's lay a little bit of of groundwork here. So I think it's an understatement to say that the composition of our, our microbiota is deeply complex. So to start, I was wondering if one of you could articulate exactly what our gut microbiome is and in very general terms, you know, our current uh, state of knowledge of, of what it does. Perna, why don't you jump in? Yeah. Sure. Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, thanks for inviting me. It, uh, this, is, this is definitely an important topic, which, uh, uh, which is sort of front and center for us. Um, when we refer to the, the microbiome, you, you hear multiple terms. You hear microbiota, you hear bacteria, you hear microbiome, um, and, and some of these are semantics, but, but in general, when we talk about microbiome, we are referring to all the microbes and their genetic elements in any ecosystem. And, and most often in the gut, we would refer to it as gut microbiome. So it includes all, all the microbes and their genetic uh, contents. And, and we also have to remember that the microbes are not just limited to bacteria. Um, they include most microbes, including bacteria, fungi, viruses, phages, parasites. So they don't get as much um, uh, credence because they are still evolving areas, but uh, uh, oftentimes it's it's considered when we're talking about the microbiome, we're talking about bacteria. Yeah, and maybe I can add to that to kind of maybe put some of the scale of this microbiome uh, into perspective. The number of bacteria that are present in our intestinal tract, these estimates have varied a little bit over time, but it seems that it's approximately equivalent to the total number of human cells that are in our body. So this is a vast population of cells. And while it's a similar number of total cells, they have a vastly greater repertoire of metabolic capabilities than we do as their human host. And so this population spreads throughout the entire digestive tract, right from the oral cavity through to the stomach, small intestine, and uh, the large intestine. generally increasing the the amount of bacteria that are present in each compartment, the relatively low amounts in the stomach increasing to larger amounts uh, in the small intestine until you get to the large intestine where the vast majority of the total microbes in our body are located at very high densities. If we're talking about what that gut microbiome does, uh, well, that's still, of course, a very active area of research and we're finding out new things that it does all the time. One of the important functions that it performs is degrading various 
fiber substrates that might be present in our diet. I think we're gonna talk about that in more detail later on, but we do get something on the order of about 10% of our calories uh, from our diet comes from microbes breaking down and fermenting uh, components of our diet. So they make a pretty large uh, chunk of the calories that we get in our diet available to us. As we were evolving as humans, this is of course is going to be a big advantage if you can get more energy out of your food. Maybe it's becoming less necessary in these days where food scarcity is not a problem for some populations, though it is for others. And maybe overconsumption of food uh, is, is a problem in some cases too. There seems to be a lot of other things though that this microbial population in our intestinal tract does for us, including helping with the development of our immune system and possibly regulating a number of different processes uh, with regards to satiety, how full we feel, with regards to even neurological processes. You may have heard about this gut-brain axis where there's communication between the microbial populations in our gut and our neurological systems. There's even thoughts that there's connections between the lung and the gut. So a lung, lung gut axis that might uh, influence processes there. So it seems that this microbial population uh, that's feeding off of our food that we're putting in there is also influencing a lot of processes that can happen throughout the body. Absolutely. And I, I think you're, both of you are touching on just the immense complexity of this and, and sort of the, we, we have some idea of, of functions that, that our microbiome will influence. And, um, you know, it has this great metabolic capacity, of course, but then some of those metabolites can lead to, to other signals and things like that, that then kind of transduce throughout the whole body. You know, I want to focus a little bit specifically on gut health and the effects of diet on gut health, um, specifically through the microbiome. You know, could one of you talk a little bit on what role the diet plays in shaping the composition of the gut microbiome? Well, I can maybe uh, start with that and then Perna can uh, jump in to, to add on as well. Um, the, the diet, of course, is going to be a, a pretty important shaper of the microbiome. There's other things that shape it. You know, our, our own immune system uh, helps shape it. The mucus that we produce in our intestinal tract serves as an important food source for some of these, for many of these microbes. So that helps shape it. But diet is really kind of the dominant thing that uh, can shift the composition of the gut microbiome. And, and that makes sense, right? That's their main food source that's coming in. And so what foods we provide to them is going to determine which uh, bacteria are going to be able to grow. So when we have shifts in our diet, either from day to day or longer term shifts in our diet, uh, we can definitely have big impacts on the composition of which microbes are at uh, greater concentrations than others. Um, it's less easy to shape uh, what microbes are actually present there. Um, you know, one, once they kind of get themselves established there, it's uh, not easy for other bacteria to kind of come in and supplant them, for instance. But certainly the, the relative amounts of these different bacteria can, can fluctuate quite a bit from day to day as our diet shifts and uh, can have longer term shifts depending on, it, on if we, we shift our, our diet. Perna, do you want to jump in and expand? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Um, um... I'll take a step back and, you know, we discussed the gut microbiome and, 
And the point that I, I wanted to make was that there's a lot of redundancy when we look at the microbial composition level, which means when we look at each individual, they might harbor a very different group of bacteria from each other, but there is less redundancy at the functional level. So all the functions that you heard about, Dr. Coburn speak about, uh, it, th those are relatively conserved, which means you may have different groups of bacteria, but they may still be performing the same functions, which means it boils down to what, what functions a community can perform. In terms of diet, as, as you just heard, you know, diet is one of the major forces which shapes the microbiome. But then when we look at the scale, um, we have to consider long-term dietary exposure versus short-term dietary exposure. Uh, I think it's pretty clear if you look at long-term dietary exposure that, that the microbiome is shaped over generations by the kind of diet people consume. And this is apparent when we try to compare agrarian cultures or compare hunter-gatherer lifestyle with more Western lifestyle, that there is, there's vast differences in the type of food that we've consumed over generations. If you look at a shorter scale, uh, while animal studies show dramatic shifts, uh, those studies are fairly well controlled for all other factors. But when we look at humans and we look at small shifts in their diet, the effect is not that dramatic. And, and we're seeing this more and more in human studies where it's getting harder to replicate the effects of diet on, on the microbiome. And this, this boils down to the fact that, you know, humans are not static, they're not put in cages, they, they're exposed to multiple things. And, and with short-term interventions or short-term changes, uh, your community will, will spring back to its original state, which means that you'll see fluctuations in your microbes, but eventually they'll just come back to what their basal state is. And, and so that's why, you know, if you go out and, and you know, have a burger that's not going to permanently damage your microbiome, it's not that, that, that delicate of a system. Uh, it's, it's definitely resilient. It can, it can overcome small shifts, small changes. But of course, if you went from consuming an all fiber diet to a no fiber diet, you will see dramatic shifts because now the community which was supporting each other by consuming these fibers is gonna be disrupted, which means new members can come in and take advantage uh, of, of the new nutrients which are available. And that's the best way that you can push out some of the old members is to starve them. Uh, is if you have a group of bacteria which are used to consuming fiber, you take away fiber from the diet, you're gonna starve some of those bacteria, but others will flourish, which can now use the new nutrient. Well, and I think that this is a great point um, to shift the conversation to fiber and, and um, resistant starches. So Daryl, I know your work specifically um, focuses on this topic area. So, you know, building on what was just said, what, what do we need to know about the impacts of fiber and starches on the gut microbiome and gut health? Yeah, sure. So I think maybe I'll, I'll start off a little bit with some of um, the definitions of the fibers and, and the resistant starch, um, because sometimes there can be some confusion about this. And there, you know, fiber isn't just this sort of monolithic category. There's actually different ways of kind of parsing it apart. So you can have soluble fibers, you can have insoluble fibers, fibers that are sort of, so, so in the insoluble fibers, you can have sort of soluble polysaccharides or, or smaller sugar chains, the insoluble things, you might have your resistant starches and your cellulose and plant cell wall type material that goes in there. Uh, in the starches, 
starch is usually a pretty big uh, part of the human diet. Something like 25% of our calories often comes from starch. And, and that starch isn't really much, doesn't end up being much of a substrate for the gut microbiome because it mostly gets chopped up by our own enzymes in the small intestine and converted to glucose and absorbed. Maybe the, the, the microbes in the small intestine can benefit from a little bit, but you have to really overwhelm the system for that kind of regular starch to make it through to, to the large intestine. Resistant starch though is a little bit different. So there's, this is basically the starch that for a variety of reasons, doesn't get broken down by those human enzymes. So the human alpha amylate, pancreatic amylase, uh, the salivary amylase, the amyloglucosidase uh, in the intestinal tract. And so it's able to actually survive to make it to that dense microbial population in the large intestine. And so there's different ways that that starch can be B-resistant. Uh, so we, we kind of divide that up into types. So type one resistant starch uh, is our whole grains. So there's nothing particularly different about the starch itself, but rather it's just surrounded by other material that our enzymes can't penetrate. Then we have the type two resistant starch. So this is from plant sources where the plants have kind of synthesized their starch in a little bit different of a way than, so non-resistant plant sources of starch would be wheat and corn typically, but tubers like potatoes, legumes, they make their starch in a little bit different way. So it has a different structure. And as long as you don't heat up that starch, which is in what we call a granular form, it now is resistant to digestion. If you cook your potatoes, so your, your tubers there, uh, you tend to break down all of this structure and it now becomes non-resistant starch. Some of the resistant starch can survive that process and uh, make it into our intestinal tract. When we see a lot of studies with resistant starches, it's often they're supplementing uncooked granular starches. When you can also have type three resistant starch, this is our retrograded starch. So after you've cooked the starch and it is allowed to cool down, refrig think refrigerator temperatures over a couple of days, it can now start to recrystallize into a form that is going to be again, resistant to digestion. And then we can have type four resistant starch, which is sort of our man-made resistant starches, if you will, where they've been chemically modified. So on your food labels, sometimes these will be counted under the modified food starches. And, and so all these things kind of have uh, different ways that they are resistant, but they all make it to the large intestinal tract along with your regular fibers that can now be fermented by, by the gut microbes there. And, and so, but each of these fibers and even each of these different resistant starch sources will tend to support uh, different subparts of the community. So they have to have the ability to break down that fiber and utilize it or else cross feed with another organism that is able to break that down. So I think that brings up uh, an important part, uh, a po an important point about fiber digestion in the, by the gut microbiome is that it's largely due to a network of organisms either that are breaking down the substrate. So if you take something complicated like a plant cell wall, where there's a lot of different polysaccharide components to it, there might be certain organisms that are able to break down xylan, certain ones that can break down arabinogalactan, others that can break down pectin, and they're all going to be kind of working together on this. But then there's also going to be other organisms that aren't even primary degraders of this fiber, 
but are instead growing off of the things that are being released by those primary degraders. So either small sugars or fermentation products from the organisms themselves. And in this way, we can get kind of a, an important network of effects from any given fiber coming through. Within the resistant starches, this can uh, the, the effects can be different between different types of resistant starches uh, on what microbes get uh, supported. It turns out that uh, resistant starch, there's only a very few microbes that are able to directly utilize this, but there's a whole network of other organisms that kind of feed off the products of those few organisms in the gut. So which fibers you have in, how much fiber you're going in is going to be a pretty important factor in not just shaping the composition of the microbiome, but also sort of the metabolomic profile of, of those microbes. Absolutely. I mean, I think you're really drawing, again, on the fact that it, it's a community of microbes in your, in your gut that work together almost. Perna, did you have anything you wanted to add to, to those remarks? Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's really um, uh, both fascinating and, and things which people don't um, uh, get usually, right? That that fiber is considered this homogeneous product, and you either have a high fiber or a low fiber. But the complexities of fiber are not something that people pay attention to. And and unfortunately, even on the microbial side, we don't know how these different fibers are prioritized within a community, and so we don't know when you. When you input a specific fiber, how different communities would have different outputs as a result of cross-feeding between those communities. So I think it's a lot more complex than than what we have, what we hear largely in public, which is, and it's not to minimize the fact that the fiber is important for microbes as a as a nutrient source, and and so a high fiber diet is good for the microbes. But I think there's a lot more that we need to understand before we can be more granular in terms of what kind of fiber might be beneficial for what kind of function. I think that's a great point. It's so interesting to see this evolution of fiber, right? Like initially fiber was kind of just like whatever is left over after all the other nutrients are accounted for, but you know, it has this very important function that's incredibly complex with this community that's also very complex. So I appreciate you guys breaking it down a little bit for us. You know, I do have to ask, Daryl, in terms of bringing it to some sort of practicality, you know, if, I, if I'm eating like mashed potatoes or something, you know, you talked about cooking that starch will make it less resistant to digestion by, by human enzymes. So, you know, our own bodies can start to break those, those starches down. But if I were then to refrigerate those potatoes and eat them cold, is that kind of what you're talking about in terms of the effects of processing and storage on those starches and, and the ways that, you know, the availability of those carbohydrates for digestion can be modulated? Yeah, so it's actually interesting. There, there's been a few, uh, you see a study every now and then that's looked at, looks at the nutritional impact of eating the food freshly cooked versus eating your leftovers the next day. And, and it's true that uh, your potatoes are going to start retrograding and putting in uh, more resistant starch. This will happen even with starches that weren't resistant starches to begin with. So if you take your pasta, for instance, put it in the fridge and eat it the next day, you will have retrograded starch in that. Wheat, wheat starch will, will retrograde. I mean, that's the process behind your bread going stale, for instance. That starch retrogradation uh, taking place. And, and it does seem like there seems to be some health benefits almost of, of eating leftovers versus the, the freshly cooked stuff. 
possibly because, and this hasn't been explicitly examined, but possibly because of that uh, retrogradation that, that's taking place there. there. It also depends on how you cook it. So I, I, somewhat ironically, making uh, French fries will actually preserve more of the resistant starch in that potato. The starch gelatinization, that breakdown of the starch is dependent on the process of water. So it's, if you're cooking it in oil, you actually exclude a lot of that water from there. There's still a fair bit of water in, in the potato itself, so it, it doesn't totally eliminate it, but it actually does help preserve more of the resistant starch. Now, that may be at the cost of bringing in other unhealthy elements into play, but in terms of resistant starch content, uh, fried potatoes can actually uh, be, be higher than other forms of cooking. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on that perfectly as well in, in terms of, you know, there is a balance here, right? You're not advocating for no. people to just go eat French fries for all the resistant starch or the more resistant starch, but you know, no, definitely like, like everything, there's, there's a give and take, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I, I want to switch gears a little bit because you, I feel like we can't talk about the microbiome without talking about probiotics. You know, um, there's quite a few products on market that can pain probiotics, and it can feel a little bit overwhelming, just the diversity of products out there that either have live and active cultures like yogurt or probiotics added. Perna, I was hoping that you could shed some light on um, supplementation with probiotics and our gut microbiota and, and what sort of impact that these probiotics are truly having. Yeah. So, I mean, we actually did look at this recently as, as a part of a uh, technical review group for the American Gastroenterology Association. And, and I, I'll just highlight the challenges first in terms of evaluating the evidence in support of probiotics, and then uh, I can give some more specific points. But the challenge is that, you know, like you said, the market has been flooded by probiotics. Majority of them don't need oversight as their dietary supplements. And there's very little required on parts of people to actually do before they put it up on the shelf. That being said, there are animal studies and human studies which have been done with probiotics. There have been mechanisms which have been attributed to probiotics, like strengthening the epithelial barrier, having an effect on um, GI motility, and, and even effects outside of the GI tract. Uh, of course, you know, in the traditional sense, when you, when you get a mechanism in animals, you then try to verify it, and then you take it to clinical trials. But that doesn't happen. The motivation for doing that has been low, given that it's such a high dollar industry where, you know, majority of the industry works with marketing, that there is very little incentive behind trying to understand how the probiotics work. In spite of that, we've seen a large array of trials, clinical studies, in, including randomized control trials, which have been done with probiotics. And, and in reviewing the data more recently for different disease states, we realized that there's actually very little clinical evidence for use of probiotics, at least in the GI diseases that we looked at. And in these guidelines are now, are now published uh, as part of the, the official guidelines, but, but we looked at only randomized controlled trials, which are the, the highest um, level of, of evidence that you can get for any clinical studies. And there were a few instances where we found specific bacteria might be beneficial, but majority of the recommendation was based on low level of evidence. We found that to prevent a uh, bacterial infection like Clostridium difficile, which can happen as a result of antibiotic use in some individuals, certain, certain bacterial strains can be protective. 
among children who are at risk of developing necrotizing enterocolitis or, or early sepsis, there are specific bacteria which might be beneficial in preventing or treat, in treating this. But largely, we found that there was very little evidence for use of probiotics for clinical conditions. That's why you'll see the probiotics are marketed predominantly as maintaining health, which is a fairly abstract term because we don't know how to define health. We don't know what we, are, what we mean when we say it is a way of staying healthy because there's no way to judge whether taking the probiotic helps you keep stay healthy or not. And, and the argument, the counter argument has been that, well, it's relatively safe, so why not? And, and that's, that's a dubious argument because harms can be considered in different ways. One majority of these studies don't consider harm in the typical form like we would do for, for clinical trials in general. Second, spending money is a form of harm too. And, and it's not traditionally considered you know, physical harm to you as a result of taking probiotics. But, but if somebody is spending money on, on taking things which are not beneficial, that would also fall within, within the harms category. So overall, I think there is, there is benefit from probiotics, but to separate out the, it's, it's like finding needle in a haystack because there's so much out there that to actually figure out the signal from the noise is not that easy. And also the approach to probiotics has been that we have certain bacteria which are considered to be safe. Let's just use them as probiotics as opposed to trying to figure out which bacteria are in fact good for you because they do something that can actually improve a host function. And so that knowledge had not accumulated when probiotics already were hitting the market. But now we are seeing more and more information about studies where you know, people have looked at how bacteria can change the biology and, and, and then develop them into uh, treatments. And, and I think in the next year or so, we will see microbiome therapies come out, at least in infectious conditions. And just to add on that part of the motivation from the industries touting these as probiotics is, yes, that's true that they have been shown to be safe, but also they're relatively cheap organisms to produce. They're organisms that can be found in the gut, but are pretty tolerant to oxygen. That makes them much easier and cheaper to produce in large quantities for to market now as probiotics. Whereas a lot of the organisms that have actually been more associated with health tend to be highly obligate anaerobes, much more difficult and with uh, fastidious uh, growth requirements requiring much more complex media. They're more difficult to grow. You have to keep it anaerobic while you're growing them. It may be harder to preserve them in an active form. I think I, I agree that there, I think there are uh, microbiological treatments that, that will work, but I think industry at this point has kind of taken the easy route uh, rather than maybe the most efficacious route. Yeah, and I think like a lot of uh, issues in foods and health, there's, there's still a lot to learn, right? So, you know, I think you, you both highlighted that there are some specific use cases where some of these therapies are, are beneficial. It's not as though they don't necessarily have any effects on health with, you know, general population consuming them. There's still really a lot to learn and maybe some optimization to be done on the approach by which, you know, people might supplement with these, with these microbes. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's accurate that there are some limited trials which have shown efficacy, but, you know, as, as Perna alluded to, the vast majority of probiotics are 
marketed as health maintainers and, and what that actually means and how you actually measure right. whether that's true or not. We, we need to find better ways of doing that, quite frankly. Right, right. As always, more research is needed. <laughs> so I do uh, want to continue down this route a little bit. So of course, especially in light of um, COVID-19 and the, the global pandemic, um, consumers are focused more than ever on, on this phrase, which, you know, isn't necessarily rooted um, very well in science, but, you know, quote unquote, boosting their immunity, um, or as maybe more appropriately said, maintaining proper immune function. Um, and I know both of you have alluded to this earlier, but what are some of the studies that we've seen so far that indicate um, the impact of the gut microbiome on immune health? What's our, our current state of the knowledge there? I can start. I mean, again, I think um, just like I mentioned, health is an abstract term. Immune health is an abstract term uh, because I have no idea what that actually means. Everybody has has a has a base level of immunity. I mean, most of the individuals are tolerant to the microbes that are present in their gut because over a period of time, the gut immune system has gotten trained to being able to tolerate certain bacteria. However, when certain bacteria, which are not supposed to be there, come in, they can trigger an abnormal immune response. In terms of boosting the immune system, it, it becomes unclear in terms of what, what are we measuring to be able to do that. Oftentimes, people will measure cytokines, people will measure markers which are associated with inflammation. But we have to remember that all of these are relevant in the context of a disease state. In a healthy individual, we don't know what's the benefit of increasing an anti-inflammatory molecule or decreasing a pro-inflammatory molecule because that might be what that individual's steady state is. And, and oftentimes, you know, these uh, probiotics which are saying they maintain immune health are not really testing effects on, on disease development. They're just testing maintenance of immune health and, and again, to me, that's still a fairly abstract term, which we, we really can't define in so many words. Um, and oftentimes this gets extrapolated to saying, oh, if we have strong immune system, then we won't get sick. We won't develop autoimmune diseases. We won't have all of these autoimmune conditions, but there's no data to support that as far as I know. So, so I think we have to be careful when, when uh, taking these things at face value. Yeah. And I, I agree with uh, what, what Perna said here. The, the microbiome is definitely important when our immune system is developing, for instance. So during those sort of early years of life, there, there's definitely studies that have shown that having a microbiome present there is critical for development of cert certain factors. Okay. And a lot of that, though, is, is related to maintaining that barrier between this gut population and our healthy tissues, making sure things stay where they're supposed to stay and don't invade through uh, in, into what should be relatively microbe-free uh, tissues. There is a, a lot of influence. Uh, so having a diverse microbiome seems to be good for training that the immune system in that way. There are certainly products that the, the microbes, um, some of the polysaccharides that the microbes produces capsules have been shown to have influences on the immune system. There's the, the short chain fatty acids that the microbes produce during carbohydrate fermentation have shown to have immunomodulatory effects. So if you didn't have a microbiome at all, a lot of these things would not function properly. But then the question becomes, okay, so we have a microbiome, 
does is there different states of how healthy that microbiome can make your, your immune system? And that's a lot less clear. So we can see, for instance, boosting butyrate levels can lower inflammatory markers. But do, does that have real world consequences? It's really hard to do those types of studies because now you need really long-term things where you're following people under those conditions and, and seeing if, you know, they, they stay healthier or they don't develop these diseases. So all, all I would say is, is if you want a recommendation for trying to get the most out of your microbiome to maintain immune health is have a diverse diet with diverse fibers in there, maintain that diversity, enough fiber in there that you're getting that short chain fatty acid production and you're probably going to be getting the most out of your microbiome that you can. That, that's, what, that's what our current state of knowledge is. Maybe in the future, we'll understand better ways of targeting certain functions in the microbiome to, to improve health. But I think if you're going to look for a recommendation on our current state of knowledge, I think that's about the best we can do at this point. That's, that's a good point, Daryl. I think uh, I tend to ignore the, the early life uh, part of it. I forget about the pediatric population, given that uh, I'm so, so used to seeing adults. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, of course, uh, in terms of early life exposure, there, there's a, that's, you know, that's what I meant when, when I said that, you know, the, the body has learned to, to tolerate these microbes, which happens in the early stages of life. But <clears throat> I was talking more of the steady state in, the, in adults, because that's where most people tend to use uh, these probiotics that, that the effect or the specific effects are, are not well characterized. But, but like you mentioned, there, there are obviously specific roles that specific bacteria can play. There are segmented filamentous bacteria, which can, which can drive certain immune responses. But the question is, is, are they relevant when somebody is relatively healthy and has no disease, as opposed to, would they be more relevant if somebody was to develop an inflammatory disease? And so that, that preventive role is where I think a lot of concern comes is, you know, can we just prevent these things by, by trying to use bacteria preventatively to, to, to prevent that? I don't think, I don't think we know the answer to that. Right. And I, you know, it's like a lot of things in, in any sort of nutrition research, there's no like silver bullet to, <laughs> to capture everything. You know, I think both of you are also touching on the fact that, you know, due to variations and, and what makes an individual unique that any sort of recommendation that can even be made is, is very general. And in the end, it's kind of like eat healthy, eat diverse foods. And that's probably the best thing you can do at this point. And the best thing that, you know, anyone can recommend at this point, because this field of microbiome research and, you know, understanding the, the precision needs for medicine and nutrition, you know, this is just still at early stages. And we have a lot, a lot of groundwork. Um, so there is a different down. approach that people have taken, which which I think is actually quite interesting. Um, is and you know we've we've taken part in this and other and others have shown this now. So we know that the microbes can can influence host behavior, and oftentimes that happens in response to diet. And and a fairly early study showed how consuming different foods can lead to changes in your blood glucose levels to different amounts. And so instead of trying to change your microbiome, people can adjust the food based on their microbiome if they were trying to prevent. So this is obviously a proof of concept study, not, not necessarily that, that healthy people need to decrease their, their blood glucose level spikes. But, but the idea that you can have a biological output, uh, which is driven by microbes in response to diet. And if you were able to measure that, can we adapt the diet more to the microbes rather than trying to change the microbes by themselves? And so, so it's two sides of the equation, but, but that's, a, that's a different approach. And I think more recently they've shown diet changes, the, the dependence of 
changes in triglyceride levels in response to diet can also be driven by microbes. So I think as we as we move along, I think we're going to see more of these studies come by, where which have practical implications uh, when we look when we are seeing patients and when we are seeing uh, individuals of how we advise them beyond just telling them to to stick to a healthy diet. It also brings me back to an older study that we had done uh, in, in a weight loss study where we where our approach was to use a volumetric diet, which is predominantly rich in fiber and high in fruits and vegetables. And by doing that, you expect people to get full more easily. As a, as a result, they would eat less calories overall. Uh, and that's the goal of the, the program. And while we found that a subset really responds well in terms of losing weight, there is a subset which does not lose weight. And this is through a stringent program where, where they're very well uh, followed in terms of following these dietary recommendations. Um, and what we found was that the group which didn't lose weight as well was possibly more efficient in extracting energy from the fruits and vegetables, which means that if somebody was already eating a diet which was high in fruits and vegetables and their microbes are already adapted and well and good at extracting calories from them, switching them to a high fruit and vegetable diet may not help them lose weight. So there are practical implications of, of diets, uh, of how we approach diets and how we uh, can intervene with the help of diets. Yeah, this, this inter-individuality in responses to diet is, I, I'm glad this is brought up because this is very near and dear to my heart. Um, we, we look at this with response to uh, resistant starch responses. And so and this is going to be true of any fiber intervention that you come in, there is majority of the population that has a certain response to it. And then there's maybe, you know, a quarter or 15% or whatever that have a different response to, to that intervention. And understanding what's the driving forces of that, I think is important for making those types of recommendations. What is going to be the best diet for you may not be the best diet for your neighbor. It's going to depend on what microbes you do have in there. Whether, you know, if your goal is weight loss, then yeah, you may not want microbes that are really good at producing short chain fatty acids from fiber because, you know, those are, as I said, uh, earlier, that can, that's about 10% of your calorie intake. If, if you increase that, you're increasing how many calories you co have coming in. Other people, uh, it, it, that might not be an issue for, and they might benefit from those increased short-chain fatty acids. Or, you know, they may, with certain fibers, they may not even get the same short-chain fatty acid profile coming off of it. You know, with the resistant starch, uh, we often look at butyrate production as a marker of a successful uh, fermentation of that resistant starch. But not everyone gets increased butyrate when they uh, consume a, a given type of resistant starch. And so that's understanding what's going on there is a big part of our research. You know, as Perna said uh, at the beginning there, there's a lot of functional similarity between individuals in terms of the microbiome. But I think what we're trying starting to understand maybe a bit is while the total functional capacity is maintained between individuals, which bacteria are performing which functions may have implications, right? Because if it's a non-butyrate producing but bacteria that's eating those things coming off your resistant starch, that resistant starch, that function of the resistant starch getting broken down still happens, but you don't get, you either get the butyrate or you don't at the end, depending on which bacteria is doing it. So, so I think there is a lot of that that still needs to be sort of teased apart in microbiome research. That's a, that's a great 
you know, really nice uh, follow-up there. And, and it almost feels like these onion layers where, you know, when we started, it seemed like a pretty straightforward thing. And, you know, as you, as you delve deeper, you realize that there are multiple things which are interconnected and it's not, not such a straightforward field. But I, I think, you know, there is both optimism and, and work that needs to be done. And the optimism is that, that these bacteria are important and we know that they're two important biological functions. And ideally, we would want to know how each of these interactions spans out in an individual. But, you know, just like in all of medicine, I don't think we'll have to wait till we figure out everything before we start seeing success with, with microbiome interventions. So I think, I think there's optimism along the way, uh, but it would really be nice, you know, if we get to a stage where we can tell people you should eat this specific fiber because of the makeup of your bacteria. And this will really provide you the most optimal benefit as opposed to saying you should just eat a high fiber diet. Uh, I mean, I hope we can get to that point soon, but, but I think we can still make small victories along the way as we get to that point. Absolutely. And I think that's a great way for us to wrap up our discussion today. I really appreciate both of you taking the time to share your insights. And like we've been saying, research on the microbiome is still evolving. And as scientists continue to learn more, IFT will amplify the latest insights and information. If you're interested in learning more about the microbiome, view our new toolkit, a link to which will be included in the description of this podcast. If you're enjoying Food Disruptors, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes or by connecting with IFT. You can find us at IFT and by searching Institute of Food Technologists on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Food Disruptors. I'm your host, Matt Teagarden. Have a great day, everyone.